Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the October 14th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Tonight, we have a chat with a legendary lesbian activist and feminist icon, Carla J. And revisit a visit with a straight woman who is a legendary gay ally. Allison Arngram, the key word is legendary. But first, let's spill some tea. The honest tea. Well, Michael Taylor Gray, this has been quite the week. Yes, it has, Chloe Corcoran. You know, we talked last week about the upcoming, as it was then, October 8th meeting of the Supreme Court dealing with LGBTQI issues regarding being fired for being gay or transgender. Right. So what did we learn from those hearings so far? Now, I know we can't expect a ruling for months, but sometimes they give leanings, sometimes they give ideas what they're thinking. What did you learn from this week? Well, is that their brains are in the bathroom. Literally. They've got potty brains. <laughs> you know, the Supreme Court, I, well, we found, I found this article in, in The New Yorker, October 9th, written by uh, Masha Gessen. I found it tongue-in-cheek, yet very informative, and I just love her take on things. Well, she's non-binary, so how do we approach that? Without knowing their preferred pronouns, I would use they, them pronouns. Okay, well, what they said, they titled their article, The Supreme Court Considers LGBT Rights but can't stop talking about bathrooms. And that's concerning, especially for transgender individuals on a lot of levels. We don't want a transgender bathroom case. No, not at all. And and it started off with Justice Sonia Sotomayor was the first to bring up bathrooms. Now, Pamela Kahn, who is a Stanford law professor, represents Bistock and Zorda, both men fired by employers for being gay. Now, she asked the judges to redirect bathroom questions to the day's other case, R.G. and G.R. Harris Funeral Homes Incorporated versus EEOC. Now, the original plaintiff of this case was Amy Stevens, who was fired by Harris Funeral Homes when she came out as transgender. Right. And specifically for that reason, she said that she was coming in the next day presenting as a woman. And a few days later, they fired her. Right. Now, she's represented by David Cole, who's the National Legal Director of ACLU. So he tried to redirect the justice to ask that question for uh, for that case. Pamela Carlin was really wanting the justices to redirect that particular question about bathrooms for that other case that was being handled by David Cole. So wanting to redirect the bathrooms from the gay discrimination cases to the transgender discrimination case. Right, because she feels that that question had nothing to do with her particular case. And to be fair, it doesn't really have anything to do with the case of Amy Stevens. Exactly. But the justices wanted to talk about bathrooms, right? In an employment discrimination case, which doesn't seem to hold water for me. Speaking of bathrooms, <laughs> right? But Justice Roberts wanted to talk about bathrooms. And A.B. Stevens' lawyer, David Cole, politely argued that bathrooms were not the problem that the justices imagined them to be. And then Justice Sotomayor wanted to talk about bathrooms again. And she brought up the uncomfortable argument that we hear so often, that what if a transgendered individual goes into, let's say they're male to female, and they go into a female bathroom, a women's room, and there are two, quote unquote, biological women who are in that bathroom, and then they start to feel uncomfortable because this transgendered woman is in that bathroom. And the term biological woman is a 
talking point used often against transgender women who also are biological women, and that is a hill I am willing to die on. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. It's so important because the way we use our language is so important because we see our community expanding. That's why we have LGBTQI+. We're expanding all the time. Identities are coming. It'll be interesting to see how the Supreme Court deals with new identities that are forming, especially out of our youth. Absolutely. You know, and well, you know, I I hate to obsess on this, but I need to really bring out this aspect of this story really stood out to me because this is an issue that is that they're using as a primary argument. Okay, remember how we talked last week about, well, let's focus lots on the why and on how. So we need to listen to what they're saying. To, in order to understand how to counter that argument, how to hear what they're saying, and how to guide them towards a greater understanding of who we are and, and how we are part of this community, this community called the American Democratic Experience, and how we're just a part of that as anybody else. Right. And transgender women, as biological women, since that seems to be an argument, deserve to use the rep, the restroom with which they identify. That's just safe. If I walk into a men's room right now, I'm not walking out. I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit before I go back to uh, the other justices who had another perspective uh, on the bathroom uh, point of view that they wanted to bring about uh, with regards to arguing this case. Um, is that when when you have a party at your house, or this would, if I was a, a lawyer arguing this case, I would say, excuse me, Justice Sotomayor or Justice Alito or Justice Kagan, when you have a party at your home and you have more than one bathroom in your house, do you distinguish them as women's room, men's room? Or when somebody asks to go to the bathroom at your home when you're having a soiree, do you just guide them to the nearest bathroom that's available to them? In many places, all the single-stall restrooms are gender-neutral, and where they're not, they should be. It's just good practice. It's best practice, really, for a lot of reasons. Cutting down on lines, helping your LGBTQI community, there's a lot of reasons to go about it. And speaking of the LGBTQI community, there was a recent CNN town hall debate on LGBTQI issues. And a lot of candidates released their plans on how they would help this community, So we decided to take a look at Pete Buttigieg and what he had to say about all of this. And I'm curious as to what your thoughts are. Well, you know, initially I saw this article. It's in the Daily Beast, uh, dailybeast.com. And it's titled, Buttigieg Drops Policy Plan to Usher in New Era for LGBT. And I went, what? He's dropping it? He's not going to do it? He's he's taking it back? He's deleting it? He's, he's, you know, uh, he's rescinding it? What's going on? And then I'm like, okay, Michael. You got to get with the lingo here. It's like with <laughs> music. They're dropping a new track. You know, right. like, you know, Queen Bee is dropping a new track online on a, some streaming service that you have to, you know, pay for. But <laughs> right. As well as you should. But um, then I'm like, oh, oh, he he's dropping it. You know, that's the language that the kids are using. So I'm like, yeah, so let's look at this. And, you know, further inspection in this. Um, and well, he's not the only candidate that's 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 you know, that is issuing or has shown a propensity to support our community in a vocal way. No, there were multiple people at the town hall and multiple people have put out their 
their plan for the LGBTQI community, talking about inclusion in the higher ranks of the government, um, representation in the higher ranks of the government. Absolutely. Kamala Harris, uh, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, Senators uh, Elizabeth, Sander, uh, Elizabeth Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Senator Bernie Sanders uh, have, have, have been vocal or have in their past shown uh, real support for our community. But uh, I just found his plan, which is an 18-page white paper titled Becoming Whole, A New Era for LGBTQ plus Americans, which includes both long-desired goals like passing anti-employment discrimination legislation, as well as other issues seldom articulated by prominent presidential candidates, including banning unnecessary surgery on intersex children. That's big. A lot of times the intersex community gets erased from the LGBTQI community, and that's something we need to be cognizant of in that we're not pushing people to the side, that we're being inclusive, even with our own community, and banning unnecessary surgeries on these children because it makes parents more comfortable. Those surgeries are not the way to go, and that's what the medical field is teaching us. Yeah, you know, it's like, it's not all about you, honey. Right. Right. It's about this individual. It's about what's best for the infant. Absolutely. You know, and he's also dealing with adding non-binary gender options to U.S. passports. Which would be huge. It's just a comfort thing, and it'll make a difference at the border and at the airport. Absolutely. And how about restoring veteran benefits to LGBT people who've been discharged from the military due to their sexual orientation or gender identity? Did you know that that was a thing? Yes. Okay, so that one, yes. I, I don't know how I missed that, but I can't believe... And I should know this. I'm a little embarrassed not to. But I can't believe that an administration would take away military benefits for people who have served the country just because of who they are. But maybe I should believe it right now. It's very believable. I mean, and I, I, I'm so past that idea of unbelievable. Or this is unprecedented. If I hear the words unprecedented or unbelievable, again, everything is believable. Believe it, it can happen. Because it is happening. It, right before our very eyes in real time. You know, and um, Buttigieg had to use the, the phrase uh, with regards to this 18-page uh, this uh, uh, plan, this document, as his gay agenda. And I'm like, you know, and I thought to myself, how can we reclaim and rearticulate this wording to be more inclusive and less, it, to me, it sounds militant sounding, whatever, because that word, those, that phrase gay agenda has been used by um, people who are against it's, our rights. It's been and against who we are as people, period. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. been used by people to say, this is what the gay people want. They want to change you. They want to change everybody else. They want to make everybody else just like them. When really, we're trying to survive. And that's our agenda, especially I know for trans women, I'll speak for myself, is survival half the time. You see an epidemic of trans women being killed, especially black trans women. And I know I say this on almost every show, but I'm not going to let it go. These things need to stop. These things need to stop. And the amount of things that get used against us are unbelievable. Take a look at Franklin Graham. What did oh. he do this week? Oh, well, what, what didn't he do this week? Well, again, you know, if there's bad weather or if there's drought, or if there's pestilence, or if there's fires, or if they're STIs. You know whose fault it is. It's our fault. Absolutely. It's, it's the gays, and, and it has to, if you're questioning your gender orienta your, your sexual orientation or your gender identity, it's your fault, apparently. So Franklin mm -hmm. Graham, son of Billy Graham, mm -hmm. got on his Facebook page this week and decided to let loose about STIs and how they are 
a result of people not conforming to gender and sexual orientation norms that he expects. According to God's plan, according to his articulation of what God's plan is. Understand that. This is this is coming from his viewpoint. And there are three particular STIs, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. Now, those aren't the daughters of King Lear, just in case you were wondering. They're at an all-time high, according to the Centers for Disease Control here in the United States. And now that can be attributed to, to, they're attributing it to two different things. One, the amount of testing has gone up. And please, if you haven't been tested, get tested. Absolutely. And the use of condoms has gone down. Yeah, people are getting a little too uh, self-assured. So remember to be safe out there. But one of my questions is, how are all the straight people getting STIs? By proxy, apparently. <laughs> I mean, it's we're we're, we're I, I I guess we're just um, I don't know. It's just through the ether, through you know some they're going to Brigadoon and coming back with with STIs and you know the gifts that keep on giving, but stop giving them, people. We all need to, this is something that affects all of us. Let's just get down to brass tacks, right. okay? And it has to do with just being accountable. Mm-hmm. To yourself and to those around you. And I don't want this to be, this is not a shaming of STIs. It's a knowledge. It's a knowledge piece. Um, It's to know what's going on with your body, I think, is really important. So while we're having a little bit of fun with this story, it's also also got some serious legs to it as well because it also discusses how religion is used against the LGBTQI community on a regular basis. And, you know, I grew up a Northern Baptist in Canton, Ohio, grew up in one of the biggest Baptist churches in the United States. We had 4,000 people in our main congregation. We had a Christian Hall of Fame hallway with all these portraits of people of a certain skin tone, (laughs) you know, and of a certain gender. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I grew up in that. But in the same church that I felt I had to hide who I was— I remember one particular Sunday, uh, there was a guest speaker in the teens department, and he said he said something, I forget what he was preaching on, but I remember he's, him stopping and looking out at us and saying, don't take my word for it. Believe it yourself. Believe it in your heart. Believe it because that's what you believe. And I thought, wow, you know, this, and the, uh, he ch- I never forget that moment. And, and so I, I, I challenge that, to, I, challenge that I, I put that challenge out to all of you as well, is that no matter what your religious affiliation, no matter where you come from, no matter what your belief system, just believe it in your heart and, and wish the best for others around you. Rather than passing judgment or, or passing blame on others, let's try to be a little more, more inclusive. And I, I believe that all of our faith is based, hopefully, in love. And maybe God's love for us is why our community is so freaking awesome. And that's the honest tea. It's time for Who Said That? on this episode of the Rainbow Minute. Because homosexuality has been condemned at various times in history, gathering information about same-gender relationships is sometimes very difficult. Some relatives of famous gay or lesbian people chose to hide or destroy letters that revealed their kin's true orientation. However, some letters have survived through time, like one to sports reporter Lorena Hickok, dated March 7th, 1933. In part, it read, quote, Oh, I want to put my arms around you. I ache to hold you close. Your ring is a great comfort. I look at it and think, she does love me, or I wouldn't be wearing it. Who said that? It was First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, 
who wore a sapphire ring given to her by Lorena Hickok. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hello, I'm Barney Frank, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. IMRU, IMRU. I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way. (laughs) Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Carla Jay is a distinguished professor emerita at Pace University in New York City, where she taught English and directed the Women's and Gender Studies program. Teaching the history she helped make. Carla Jay was already a member of the feminist action group Red Stockings, as well as the early lesbian organization Daughters of Belitis. When in 1969, in the wake of the Stonewall Riots, she joined the chess-forming Gay Liberation Front, GLF. We're meeting in Midtown New York City for a chat about the future and the past. I'm Carla Jay. I'm the author, editor, and translator of 10 books, the most recent of which is Tales of the Lavender Menace, a Memoir of Liberation. I also edited 24 books for NYU Press for a series called The Cutting Edge, Lesbian Life and Literature. I just retired from Pace University after 39 years of teaching English, women's studies, and queer studies. How did you become an activist? I really became caught up in historical events. For one thing, I I went to Barnard, which was part of Columbia, and I just happened to be there during the Columbia uprisings. And it was the total injustice of the New York City Tactical Police Force, which rounded up the innocent and the guilty alike, which thrust me into the movement. There's nothing like being out there on the campus and being chased around by police to see friends arrested and beaten up for doing nothing mostly, and also to be treated badly by the men who thought that women's place in the movement was to sleep with them and to provide peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That was a great way to make a feminist out of anyone. So a lot of us came out of this uprising as feminists, as pacifists. And also another important thing that happened to me when I was in college was that Malcolm X came to Barnard to speak in February. I think it was in 1964. And two days later, he was dead. And I met him two days before his assassination. And it was just such a colossal event, you know, to meet someone who was then assassinated and who was really, at that moment in his life, reaching out to, you know, white college kids like me. It was really quite phenomenal for me. And I really was very interested in the civil rights movement as well. Then I heard about the women's movement and that feminists were forming groups, you know, Red Stockings, New York Radical Feminists. And I went to an event where different feminist groups were recruiting. And I decided to go with a radical group called Red Stockings, which had developed something called consciousness raising, which they had borrowed from the mainland Chinese, as we called them back then. And in China, it was called speaking bitterness. So I joined consciousness raising, and there were a lot of very interesting people in that group, including Rita Mae Brown, Alex Kate Shulman, both of whom are well-known writers, and we analyzed things that 
we had never discussed before as women, things about how we were raised differently as men and women. We just never had spoken of that, being raised as boys and girls and relationships and our education and how that might have been different because of our gender. Today, of course, people speak of these things, but people really had never spoken of these things. And we wrote position papers, and we also did a lot of work around abortion, which was illegal. However, the feminist movement was homophobic. It was also somewhat classist. They were middle-class white ladies. They weren't particularly interested in the civil rights movement. And they certainly weren't interested in lesbians. Although Red Stockings created the saying, the personal is political, when it came to lesbians, they thought the personal was personal and they didn't want to hear about it. So when Stonewall happened and the Gay Liberation Front formed shortly thereafter, I didn't walk over there, I ran over there to join the Gay Liberation Front. And that's how I became not just a, a radical feminist, I became a radical gay activist. You know, in the 1960s, it seemed possible that anyone could change the world. How do you explain that era to millennials? I don't think that young people today can understand what our lives were like in the 1960s. When I was at Barnard, a lesbian could be thrown out for being a lesbian. Women's colleges in particular were homophobic because they didn't want to be known as hotbeds of lesbians. You could be arrested if there were a raid on a bar. Even if you were not arrested in the bar raid because you had the right ID and you were of legal age, which was of 18 at the time in New York, and you were wearing the proper clothing, if they got any information off you, if they got your name, if they got your address, and they found out your employer or your school or where you lived, you would lose your apartment, you would lose your job, your family would kick you out. You could simply lose everything, your marriage, your children, anything you had, you would lose. We had no rights at all. We couldn't find each other because words like homosexual or gay or lesbian, which came along with the Gay Liberation Front, could not be printed in any newspaper or in the yellow pages, which preceded the internet. And so we couldn't find each other. It was really this time of loneliness and isolation. And many people were ashamed of each other or of themselves. It was not kind of a happy time for most gay men and lesbians to be who we were. So it's hard to understand that today. When we first met the Gay Liberation Front, there were some people, interestingly enough, who expressed the desire when we said, what do we want? Some people actually said they wanted to get married. But more people said, I would really just like to be able to hold my lover's hand and not be beaten up. <laughs> you know, That seemed like a far more realistic goal. I never thought that we'd have the right to get married in my lifetime. I'm thrilled that we do. It really wasn't a primary goal. Like John Waters, you know, I thought that not having to go in the military was one of the perks of being gay and maybe not having to get married, which was his other comment. But I'm thrilled that people can get married. It's a complicated issue. It certainly wasn't my own first priority. We wanted to live in peace at a time when people were being persecuted and we also have to remember that there were people in our movement who were killed for being out there and working for the movement. This is Steve Pride, and I'm talking to pioneering LGBT activist Carla J. Besides your work in New York, you were involved in the very first Pride Parade in Los Angeles. 
The GLF, we organized the parade in 1970, and I was actually in the first poster that organized the picnic the day before, the Saturday before the parade, and we advertised that we had a picnic at Griffith Park, so we had a big picnic, and then we had a parade going down, what was the Hollywood Boulevard or something, it wasn't a long parade. The difference between the parade in Los Angeles and the parade in New York, we called them a march back then because we thought of them as being political rather than being, you know, the Thanksgiving Day parade. We had banners, you know, mostly homemade with markers and things like that, was that in Los Angeles, there were some floats, even in the first march. And they had this float with a tube of Vaseline on it, which I could not believe that they had something like that. It was very in your face. And that was like KY of 1969, 1970. This was in June of 1970. And we had this march and we were kind of afraid there would be violence. My strategy was always to stay smack in the middle of the crowd, because if you were like at the edge close to the people who were the onlookers, you were much more likely to be hit by a bottle or somebody could throw beer at you or something like that. And we did walk and it went really well and there was a very thin crowd, maybe one deep, you know, of people who were out there mostly cheering us on. We were booed by some people. And around that event, there was also a sit-in at the federal building where we camped for several days asking for rights, and uh, there was fasting going on, and we sat out there for several days and nights at the federal building, and Troy Perry was the spokesperson for that event, although he went home for showers. The rest of us stayed there while he got to shower. We were going to fast until there were rights for lesbians and gay men, but obviously we, we gave in. <laughs> As a movement, what's our biggest challenge? One of the problems of the gay movement back in 1969, and maybe today, is that we have very tenuous bonds. What is it that holds us together? We like people of the same sex. This is LG, some B people, and not all people who are I or T. And what holds us all together is that we are oppressed by some people in society at large as queer. And that's a very tenuous bond. We don't come from the same class. We don't come from the same race. We don't come from the same religious background. We don't have the same educational background. And so what held people in, for example, the black civil rights movement together does not hold us together. And this is one reason why the black movement could have a leader like Martin Luther King Jr. And we never had a Martin Luther Queen to lead us. When anyone has risen to the top of our movement, we have torn that person down because there is never going to be a person that represents us. And this was the problem from the very beginning. We were in there, you know, black, white, Latinos, street transvestites, people who had sex in the back of trucks, lesbians who came in off the streets, college-educated, radical feminists like myself, gay men who had been on the Vence Ramos brigades, men who came in from Mattachine. We had nothing in common except the fact that we were really angry about what had happened at Stonewall. We wanted to do something, and we couldn't agree on much more. And we tried to hold it together. We did. We did a lot. You know, we had a lot of actions. We created dances. We picketed the New York Times. We had other political actions as well. 
But the other side of it is, you know, when people say, well, why didn't these groups last? We never intended it to last. We weren't setting up a corporation that was supposed to last in perpetuity. We had no political structure. We didn't even have leaders like a president and vice president. We had a chair for a month whose name was picked out of a hat. That's how I became the head for one month. My name was simply picked out of a hat. We were an anarchistic sort of organization. But those same sorts of issues exist today. People need more to act on a micro front. And that's why when groups represent us nationally and they lobby for something nationally to represent us all, no one is ever going to agree with what it is they want to do. And instead of taking activism into our own hands, we've pulled out our credit cards and we've turned over our own lives to large organizations like, for example, the Human Rights Campaign. We have become lobbyists. And it's not that we shouldn't do that. There is some irony, however, in the fact that Edie Windsor, a single plaintiff, overturned all of these laws when I'm 100% certain that probably large organizations like Lambda Legal Defense, that they were putting together these coalitions of plaintiffs that would represent different categories, let's say, of people who were discriminated against, like veterans and people who couldn't get other kinds of benefits because their marriages weren't recognized by the federal government, for example, social security benefits and so on. But that's what many people do. People would rather partake of social events and write out a financial reward for someone to take care of us. Now, for certain things that make sense, we can't do cancer research, we can't do HIV research, so of course give money to somebody who can do this research for you. There are things that we cannot do. However, in our local communities, there are things we can do. Just to give you one, for instance, I see a lot of activists like myself who, unlike me, didn't have this moment of enlightenment where I said to myself, aha, we never got a dime for what we did. And I said to myself, I got to get a job, you know. I never got any money for activism. I'm not complaining. I did okay. But I see a lot of people I knew from the women's movement, from the LGBTQ movement, who are really badly off, people without whom we wouldn't have marriage, we wouldn't have anything. And if you're out there and you're young, you know, and you can't go over to help an LGBTQ senior for an hour a week, help them shop, help them whatever, do something, then there's really a problem. Say thank you to these people because their being out helped us be out, the people who are older than I am who are 80, help me be out. Carla, any final thoughts you want to share? What I learned from Gandhi was until you find something you're willing to die for, you don't have something you're willing to live for. And because I inadvertently faced death, literally, a couple of times, and because I faced the wrath of friends and foes and faced poverty and lived in poverty, there's nothing that frightens me. The fact that I have lost my eyesight, you're going to have to run me over with a Mack truck to stop me. You know, because I've been so lucky to be in this movement, to have had this life, to have seen these changes, to have met all the people I've met, to have gone the places I've gone, to have seen the changes I've seen. And, you know, I just feel incredibly lucky. And I think that's an amazing thing. This has been a conversation with legendary lesbian and feminist activist Carla J. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
Don't go away. We'll be right back. It's time for Who Said That on this episode of the Rainbow Minute. Born in 1791, he would later serve in both houses of the Pennsylvania legislature. He also served as Minister to Russia under President Andrew Jackson and Secretary of State under President James Polk. Before serving as President of the United States, he lived for 15 years with close friend Alabama Senator William Rufus King. Rumors swirled around Washington, D.C. about their relationship. Andrew Jackson even referred to Senator King as Miss Nancy and Aunt Fancy. While apart during this relationship, the future president said, I have gone a-wooing to several gentlemen, but have not succeeded with any one of them. Who said that? It was James Buchanan, who in 1857 became America's 15th president, and the only president to remain a bachelor. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hello, I'm Cece McDonald, and you're listening to I Am Are You Radio Magazine. I'm beautiful in my way, cause God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way. Alison Arngram is an actress and author, beginning her television career at the age of 12. A former child star, best known for her portrayal of Nellie Olson on the NBC television series Little House on the Prairie. And... The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence have named her a saint for her early and continuous AIDS activism. I wonder why Laura Ingalls doesn't come in the store anymore. Because she's too poor to buy anything. That's why. So's her father. He can't even pay what he owes in the store. Yeah. Can't get a decent job either. All he does is dig in the mud and clean up after horses. My paw works hard! So does a mule. I'm Allison Arngram. I was the evil Nellie Olson, the prairie bitch, on Little House in the Prairie for many, 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 many years. And technically still am, as the show does not go away. It is in 140 countries and is on DVD in several languages. And I am beloved in France and Argentina, apparently. When I mentioned I was interviewing Alison Ongram for an LGBT show, everyone said, why? Is she coming out? <laughs> no. Well, she's gay? No, but she's the gayest heterosexual I've ever heard of. <laughs> I, I was Nellie Olson. How much gayer a life do you need? I actually have had young people ask me if gay men were calling each other Nellie because of me, and I had to say, no, no, that, that, that term predates even my birth, let alone the show. You've had an unusual life. People say, well, when you got on TV and became famous, did your life get weird? No, that would have been impossible for my life to have gotten any weirder than it already was. My mother was a famous cartoon artist. She was the voice of Casper the Friendly Ghost. She was the voice of Gumby. She was Sweet Polly, Purebred, Underdog's Girlfriend, and Davy of Davy and Goliath. My father was an actor who became a personal manager and worked for Liberace. In addition to this, my father was gay and my parents had an open marriage. And then I got left home alone with my older brother who turned out to be completely out of his mind and uh, physically and sexually abused me. So I'm a survivor of physical and sexual abuse. I have a gay dad. And I was hanging around Liberace and Christine Jorgensen when I was seven, eight years old. So getting Little House at 12 was probably like, you know, a slow day. (laughs) 
Tell me about your family. My parents were married in the mid-50s when you didn't really announce that you were getting married and having an open relationship and that you were bisexual. It just wasn't something people necessarily said down at the country club. A lot of young people don't realize a gay wasn't invented last week. People really were gay and bisexual before the 70s, and people really did get married. And sometimes, as opposed to, you hear stories where people get married and the wife doesn't know that the husband is gay. People did get married and know that their partner was gay or bisexual, and it was on the up and up. This really did happen, and it happened for, you know, thousands of years. And it even happened in the 50s when people pretended it didn't. And uh, my parents were in the theater. They ran a theater in Canada, and uh, theater has not changed any. Everyone in the theater was sleeping with everybody else, and, and nobody thought anything of it. So I guess I don't know if they were ahead of their time, or there's just really a whole lot more of this going on than anybody wanted to admit to back then. Well, he was just theatrical, Theatrical, yes. That was the thing when people would say, well, what's the deal with your debt? Oh, he's just theatrical. And, and and that was the thing. It's like Liberace was supposed to be straight. I mean, you know, this was the insanity of it all. I tell the story of being taken to Liberace's show when I was eight years old and being told, now, be nice, don't say anything because no one must know that Liberace is gay. I said, yeah, I'm eight. I know he's gay. God sakes, people. But that was the thing. There was this weird double standard. There were these women who were in love with Liberace. He had fans like you would not believe. They had t-shirts and picture discs. He had Liberace soap. You could take a bath with Liberace. And he was so popular. He was the highest paid entertainer in the world at one point. He was the most successful people ever. He had a TV show. He had the tour. He had the albums. He's on iTunes. You can get Liberace now on iTunes. He's still popular. And these women were in love with him. And if you said, is this man gay? Is this man a homosexual? They would have said, oh, how dare you? But if you said, so is he straight? Is he going to come off that stage and marry you? They'd have said, oh, don't be ridiculous. And so people like knew that Liberace was gay, but they didn't say that Liberace was gay. And you know, he sued. He sued a magazine for saying he was gay in like the 50s. And he won. Another surprising LGBT stressing the T, name in your book is Christine Jorgensen. Well, Christine, for the young folk, as I always say, the first famous male-to-female transsexual, she knew something was wrong when she was a young man, when she was George. And her family was strangely very supportive at the time. They knew George was different and didn't know what and kept supporting him in whatever he was doing. And then when he found out various doctors started saying, you know, I hear they do an operation. And then that's when, you know, he went to Denmark and all that. And when he came back, his family was shocked. But then they said, no, no, it's our daughter and we love her. And he's his family was totally behind him. But when she became Christine, she was the first person to really go public. It was a fluke thing that just the press found out while she was in the hospital and it all hit the fam. And she was not really prepared for this and had to deal with the whole fame thing. But what she eventually did is she had a book and she had a nightclub act. So she had a publicist, and she was in Hollywood. Her publicist was my mother's publicist. So Casper the Friendly Ghost publicist, Christine Jorgensen's publicist, like how insane is all this? And I met her, and I was like six, seven, eight years old, and she was really nice. I called her Auntie Christine. But my parents actually explained to me that Auntie Christine used to be a man. And, of course, I was like, yeah, right. But then when they explained it, I thought it was fantastic because – I watch the news. I, I, I say I joke about it in my stand-up bag. I say, yeah, people are going to the moon, men turning into women, science is on the march. But I, I did. I thought it was brilliant. I said, oh, wait, are you saying that I could have an operation? I could, I could become a guy if I wanted to. 
And they said, well, you'd have to be an adult. Blah, blah. Well, technically, yes. And I was like, that's fantastic. That is so cool. I thought that was genius that they'd finally perfected this. I thought, so wait, if you really don't like it, if you're in the wrong body, if something goes wrong, you can actually have that fixed. You can go become a man or become a woman. As a kid, I thought, well, that is just the smartest thing ever. Like, why didn't they think of that years ago? <laughs> it, it didn't seem odd to me. To me, it was turning from Ken to Barbie. I mean, I had no clue what it really meant, but I thought it was genius. And I loved that I, I got to know Christine, and I wish I'd gotten to know her better and, and, you know, hung out with her more. She didn't talk down to children. And, you know, when I was little, and I, I was small for my age, so people tended to go, hello, little girl, and talk to me like I was a cat. And it's like, oh, shut up. And Christine didn't. You could have a normal conversation with her, even if you were seven. She would treat you like a person and have a normal discussion with you. And when I read her autobiography, she talked about when she was in the hospital for a long, long time after the surgery, because this was in the old days, and she was very sick, and it was a long recovery period. And she was on a special ward. They didn't really have a ward for this or a place to put you. So she was with a lot of terminally ill children. And she befriended a lot of very chronically ill and terminally ill kids and sat around talking to the kids all day. And so that was the thing. She was really great with children. And she was actually, you know, kind of sad that she didn't marry and start a family. Speaking of family, sorry, there's no easy transition for this one. You were sexually abused for years by your brother. Something you talk about but don't dwell on in the book. It's a couple of sentences. The, any description of anything, it, it's literally, it's a few words. It's a paragraph here and a paragraph there. It's almost nothing. It's like half a page. The reason I talked about it at all was because why was I Nellie Olson? Why was I able to play this character who was so angry? who was so mean, who had all this rage and wanted to bully people and be so crazy because I had all this angst and pain and rage in there. It's like, where was I getting this from? Well, now you know. Now you know why I was so miserable that I could be Nellie Olson. That's where it was coming from. And what was incredible about being Nellie Olson was I had a place to put it. I mean, that's one of the hardest things for people who've been abused is where where do you go with all that anger? Very often the perpetrator is dead. They're gone. There's nothing. You can't go yell at them. They're not even there. Where do you put all this? Well, I had somewhere to go with it. I had a creative outlet and an emotional outlet at the same time. Plus, I had the cast of Little House in the Prairie who were these incredibly supportive, fun, wonderful people who I talk about endlessly and have hysterical stories about in the book. Allison, the first time we met was a dozen years ago when you were being canonized by the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence as a community saint for your work in the trenches of the AIDS epidemic. What drew you to AIDS activism? When I was in Little House, Nellie finally gets married because we're on the prairie. Even if you're a bitch, you get married. We're getting married, Mother. We're getting married. Tomorrow. Tomorrow? You can't. Well, you, there's no gown and, and a church wedding. Oh, we can't have a church wedding, Mrs. Olson. Uh, something simple. Outside. No church wedding? Why not? I'm Jewish. Oh, he's Jewish. He's Jewish. Ah, no. Now, calm down. Calm down. Marrying our daughter. He's marrying our daughter. <laughs> Nellie married Percival. I married Steve Tracy. And Steve Tracy was this wonderful person, a wonderful actor. And he was gay. And once again, it was the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, there was no Neil Patrick Harris then. You didn't go on Little House of the Prairie and go, hi, I'm an openly gay actor. You just, people did not. 
People are still can barely get them out of the closet now. You can imagine them. And uh, so people, they all thought we were dating. It was just nuts because you're married on TV. But he was fantastic. We're really good friends. And our chemistry, I mean, you can see it on the show. Nellie and Percival are so in love. It just it worked perfectly. And when he got AIDS in, I guess he got sick, really, 80, 45. Uh, he died in 86. He went public. And this was 86. This is literally, Liberace was still on the watermelon diet. Rock Hudson was still going, no, no, I'm fine. I mean, it was completely insane. It was a time period when no one would say they had AIDS. And there were also no protections. I mean, at that point, the laws that prevented someone from legally being evicted from their apartment for having HIV, to be fired from your job perfectly legally because you have HIV. The protections for this were still being put in. AIDS was then about to be declared actually uh, an illness, a handicap. It was still a syndrome. I mean, it was crazy. It was the early, early days where the Yale AIDS Law Project was now changing the laws. It was absolutely nuts. So people did not say they had AIDS. This was when people were still putting the food trays outside the hospital hospital rooms in the hospital and letting people lie there in their beds. And Steve went on television and told everyone he had AIDS. <laughs> he just like, um, He was very brave. There were, there were really no drugs to speak of. I mean, AZT didn't come out till like a year or two later. He was having experimental treatments where he had to inject himself in the leg and it was extremely painful. But he said it may save someone else later. So he did it. One of the bravest people I ever met. And I tried to help him at the time, but one, he was extremely brave, proud, and self-sufficient. And his mother and his sister flew out from Florida to take care of him. His family did not turn on him. It was awesome. Uh, and he had friends. He also had, like, health insurance and money and resources, having been on TV. So he was doing pretty good. And he also, you know, between AIDS Project Los Angeles, he had Project Angel Food, he had Shanti, he had every AIDS agency. He worked the system, had somebody coming out. So, you know, he didn't need me to come over and, like, you know, drag him around the house or do his laundry. But what I saw were 90% of people were not in his position. In 1986, people were not covered by their insurance for this. They had no insurance. They had no money. They didn't know where to get treatment. They didn't know where to get services. And their families ran for the hills, and their friends threw them out of their homes and apartments. And when I saw what was going on, I wound up down at AIDS Project Los Angeles, and I took the hotline training and wound up answering the calls. Well, I, I wanted to take the hotline training because when Steve got sick and it hit the, the tabloids, my phone would ring, and it would be American press, foreign press, how do you get AIDS? Do you have AIDS? Did you get infected? Because you kissed him on TV. Well, how did he get it? Well, am I going to get it? And I'm like, shouldn't you be having this conversation with your doctor? I mean, people, I went to an audition and the casting director were talking and she started to, she, she, I didn't even get to read. She shut the door and started asking me about AIDS and she rolled up her pant leg and showed me her mosquito bites and said, is this Kaposi's? And wanted me to diagnose the marks on her leg because she thought maybe she had AIDS. I mean, this is how freaked out people were in the 80s. And I was like, okay, this is what people are going to ask me. So I thought, if this is this is ridiculous. So I, I went to the hotline and was trained so that way when people asked me hysterical questions, I could at least answer them. So that put me in the position when I, you know, they ask celebrities everything. When I was on talk shows or interviewed, I could give correct information because I was taking the hotline training. And I was able to help a lot of people. And and then I married the guy who ran the hotline. So I lived happily ever after. That's karma. You're giving, putting it <laughs> out there and you get it back. Yeah, I got to keep the guy around. I took the training. What was your prize for doing several years in the hotline? I got to keep the director. I got to take him on. What do you want readers to take away from your book? When I read a book, 
I want someone to tell me a story. And a lot of celebrity memoirs are kind of like, well, then I made this movie and then I had sex with this guy. And, and, and you know, that's celebrity memoir. I, I didn't want to do that. I love it when I read a story and they tell me a story. And it's like, and I'm on the edge of my seat going, oh, how are they going to get out of that one? That's what I like. So I thought, well, I wonder if I could do that with my book. I wonder if I could make it so like, okay, here's what happened. I'm going to tell you what happened. And that's what people have said. They said they can't stop reading the darn thing. They're on the edge of their seat. And I'm just, I'm, I'm thrilled that that's how it came out. This has been a conversation with Alison Ongram. Her memoir is called Confessions of a Prairie Bitch, How I Survived Nellie Olson and Learned to Love Being Hated. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Well, we still have a couple minutes. Enough time for a last word. So, tonight, let's take the gay back machine to the 1970s. I'm Harvey Milk. I'm a supervisor in San Francisco. And I'm Greg Gordon for I Am Are You. I'm, and I'm gay. <laughs> so am I. Since the dawn of creation, one eternal question has been asked down through the ages. A question which has been known to strike fear into the hearts and minds of decent people everywhere. A question so overwhelming in its challenge to human identity that some people have been driven to the brink of despair whenever such a question has been asked of them. You ready to accept the challenge? Do you dare to confront the question of the ages? I am. Are you? In 1974, KPFK, Tuesday nights at 11 was, as I recall, their sex hour. The first Tuesday of the month was Lesbian Sisters. The third Tuesday of the month was a program for gay men called Gay at Heart, hosted by a guy who went by the name of Morning Glory. His claim to fame, from what I understand, was that he had then L.A. County Supervisor Ed Edelman on the program during the oil crisis, and he asked Edelman if that was going to impact the availability of KY lubricant. Anyway, that probably would give you some idea of the nature of that program. Anyway, Morning Glory decided to leave town. He was moving to Georgia to be with his partner. KPFK went to the Gay Community Services Center, which is what it was called at the time, near downtown L.A., put up flyers looking for a person or persons to take over for that third Tuesday of the month gay men's program time slot. I was uh, facilitating rap groups at the time, and a guy by the name of Enric Morello and Colin McQueen and I, we volunteered basically to, to come in, and our first program was in August of 1974. It was a live show, and I think the subject was myths about gay men, and it was open phones and we didn't take over the name Gay at Heart. The first name I can remember of the collective was the Great Gay Radio Conspiracy, and eventually we came upon IMRU. 
I remember driving to our first program, trying to figure out whether I was going to use my real name on the air or not. And keep in mind, this was August of 74. And I decided what the heck, and I did. And I had never had a better understanding of what the feeling of being liberated felt like until I was driving home from that broadcast because I felt so free. Um, we did our first production feature in February of 1975. The station had a theme of that month, which was romance. And so our program was Gay Romance, Some Alternatives for the 70s. And we divided it into monogamous relationships, open relationships, and being single, and the proponents for each of those. And we mixed with music, and it was had pre-recorded. Yeah, those were heydays, I guess. I've been at this for a long time. I... I shudder to think about that from time to time, but I've explained to people, like my brother, for example, expressed disappointment in me because he doesn't feel like I achieved the potential that I could have achieved with my life professionally. And I've tried to explain to him that I really, it may sound corny, but I've, I felt this as sort of a calling. Just turn your radio on. Turn your radio from Lesbian Sisters. And this is Greg Gordon from the Gay Radio Collective. Lesbian Sisters, providing programming specifically geared to lesbian women, airs on the first Tuesday of each month at 10 p.m. And the Gay Radio Collective presents IMRU on all other Tuesday nights at 10. Lesbian Sisters and IMRU will continue to bring you lively discussions, music, poetry, comedy sketches, and the news of the gay community. Now, Tuesday nights at 10 on listener-supported radio for all of Southern California, KPFK 90.7 FM. Please join us. As we reach the end of tonight's journey, please gather your belongings, take the unenlightened by the hand, and exit to the far left of the tram's forward motion. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and director of distribution and sparkle, Vash Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs, please email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcast on YouTube. Good Good night. night.